Hey everyone, before we get started, there's a lot of charitable funds set up to support the community of East Palestine, but one that we wanted to highlight was sent to us by a follower on Instagram named Claire. They work at a YMCA camp in North Springfield, Pennsylvania called Camp Fitch, and East Palestine is one of the schools that comes to this camp for their outdoor education program. Uh, they do an annual Polar Bear Plunge fundraiser to raise money for camper scholarships, and this year, Claire and her co-workers have made it their goal to cover the entire cost of attending for the campers from East Palestine. I think this is a really good cause and a really unique one, and so we're hoping that if y'all who are listening have an extra dollar to spare, that you'll consider donating it to this cause and help these campers out. You can find a link in our show notes to donate and support this fundraiser. Thank you all, and we hope that you um, enjoy this episode and find it informative. We, uh, we spent a lot of time trying to get as much details and information about the derailment in East Palestine and the uh, disaster created by Northbrook Southern. So we hope that it's helpful and that you find it interesting. We are hearing that Norfolk Southern is offering $1,000 to residents who are afraid and had to flee their homes. Is $1,000 enough? Can't even answer that. Well, absolutely no, it's not enough. And there are actually a lot of people that are afraid to take it because they think that they will not be liable if they take the convenience money. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to AppPod Latcher. My name is Chuck Corr, and I'm joined, as always, by the wonderful Callie Pruitt, the woman that needs no introduction. We're here. We got a doozy of an episode today. It's a pretty long one, and uh, it's it's a pretty heavy topic. We're talking about the East Palestine train derailment, otherwise known as the Norfolk Southern disaster, and we're going to dive right into that. But, Callie, let's get warmed up a little bit, because we can't dive right into this this depressing stuff just yet. I have to ask you a question. I don't know if I'm the same way as you with my glasses, but... When you have pictures of yourself not wearing glasses, I do not recognize you. It's so weird. <laughs> I So you posted, to give context, you posted some pictures of a wedding that you were at this weekend on Instagram. Yes. And I pulled my phone out at one point this weekend, and I saw those pictures, and I was like, who the hell is this? Like, who, I am not... Who is this person that I'm following? <laughs> like, I have never seen this person in my life. And I look, Callie Pro, I was like, what? Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. Like, you look great. But I, it was just like, I, I was like, who is this person? Yeah, I, I get that a lot. Because I can't, I can't see. I don't, and I don't have mm-hmm. contacts. So I went to this wedding, like, completely flying blind. People were blobs. But, it, 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 like, it was black tie, so I didn't wear my glasses. It was fun. And um, so many people have been like, what? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> the first ones I posted, I it was like right when my hair was at its poofiest. And I just felt the spirit of Casey Musgraves running through me. And that was like my inspiration for the whole look was Casey Not Musgraves. A- not a bad spirit to have. How was the how was the wedding? Um, I didn't have too many people who tried to pat my pregnant belly, which was nice. Um, I feel like people, you know, maybe are learning not to do that. <laughs> That's such a strange thing to me. I would never. Is it okay? Let me ask you this: Is it mostly women or men that will do that to you? It's a pretty even mix, actually. That's wild to me. <laughs> I would ne- and look. There's lots of things that guys do that I would never do, but I would never go up to 
a woman, a stranger, definitely not, or even someone maybe I casually know, or even somebody I know really well, and pat their pregnant stomach. That just is, God, that's weird. Yeah, it's it's uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I feel like there are very few people that have like a pass for it. So like grandparents. So my parents, Danny's parents, I have no problem with them touching my pregnant belly. That's it's like their grandkid. It's cute. Um, but mm -hmm. these are people like you're right. People I didn't really know. Um, lots of old ladies. Um, and then just like, I don't know, the men who do it are never like the ones who've done it to me are never like creepy about it they're just like very forward and don't ask and they just touch your belly it's very weird I, I just feel like the the practice of it is inherently creepy yeah it's um it's got some vibes there was somebody I saw this amazing uh, uh, amazing thread about a pregnant woman who went to Starbucks and got a coffee um, and the guy behind the counter said, you really shouldn't be drinking caffeine when you're pregnant. And she said, I'm not pregnant. And just like humiliated him. She was pregnant. Like it was. Oh, yes. <laughs> I would do that. If I if I was a woman and was pregnant, I would do that every single time, even if it was extreme, like you were ready to burst out of the, right. the womb. It's pregnant. so it's such a funny thing. I love it. And like people don't know, like their latest research says it's fine to drink you know, a cup of coffee a day. So like, it's not a big deal. And this person just took it upon themselves to police a pregnant person. I just love like how, how immediate karma that was. The one thing I do admire about that person though, is the confidence. <laughs> I, I was someone that lacked confidence growing up and I wish that I, I wouldn't do that. I'm not saying I'd do that, but I wish that I had it in me to, to go look at that person in the face and tell them, like mansplain to them you shouldn't be doing that if you're pregnant right like this barista at starbucks right <laughs> well speaking of a, a few choice words we got a heavy episode today this this very well could be the longest episode that we'll do we don't know yet because we're just now recording it but we have an interview with john russell of the holler ohio valley who has been on the ground in east palestine reporting uh he's a I, i'd say he's a freelance journalist he, he's uh he's got a huge following on tiktok um he has he's native to the area uh, he actually ran for congress in ohio at one point i don't remember which year but I think 2016. But he's been on the ground talking to people in East Palestine. He's been doing that since before the derailment happened. He's talked to people there about the rail strike and all of that stuff. So he's got a keen sense of what's happening on the ground. We are very excited to talk to him. It's a great interview that you all, I'm sure, will enjoy and will find super interesting. But today is kind of a different episode because we're talking all about this East Palestine, Norfolk Southern environmental disaster train derailment. It's a deep dive. We went... We went deep. We tunneled we under a subterranean. Yeah. No, if um if we were children in school, we would have dug straight to China on this one. Right. right. Yes, we would and we would have made it. We wouldn't we wouldn't have burnt up an earth's core. We would have made it through somehow. But um we do have just a quick announcement at the beginning. I wanted to plug our Patreon, patreon.com slash appodlatchup. If you join, you get a custom limerick from Callie Pruitt. Now, we had several people join this past week. We're going to punt the limericks until next week because we just got so much to cover. But we wanted to plug that's the way that we finance our show. 
and it has been a really important funding source for us. It helps us get these wonderful microphones, which mine's finally working again, and all the other tools we use to make this happen every week. So we really want to um, encourage you to join. If you can, you can join for as little as a dollar a month. Callie, anything else to add? We spent hours and hours of our time putting together in one place so that you didn't have to. If you value that kind of work, please join our Patreon. It's something that really supports us um, and the work that we do. This work is so important to our region and to us as individuals. um, And we hope uh, to your communities as well. So uh, support us on Patreon. So we're going to talk about the background of this event this derailment, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. We're going to talk about all the details that happen with it. We're going to do a deep dive into the aftermath, the community environmental impacts, the government response, and in some cases, lack thereof. And we're going to talk about why it happened. And uh, we also will have a little bit of listener testimony before we get into our interview. This is as comprehensive as I think we could possibly muster in the time period that we had to do this in. And I will premise this by saying that this is this information is current as of right now, as of February 20th, 2023 at 6.04 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Year of Our Lord and Savior Steve Irwin. Things are bound to change, um, I think, because this is an ongoing developing thing. This is an ongoing developing event, so things are going to change. But this is the information as we know it now. So East Palestine, Ohio is in uh, Columbiana County, right on the border of Ohio and Pennsylvania. And it's about 18 miles north of the northernmost panhandle of West Virginia. So it's it is right Yes. If you are watching on YouTube, um, Chuck's middle finger is the panhandle, and he is showing you right now exactly (laughs) where East Palestine is. So it's it's um, very close to uh, West Virginia, very close to multiple states, um, and has a lot of a lot of. impact on uh especially this interstate travel we're going to be talking about ohio is one of the major major railway states um but just as general info east palestine um is a town of about 4800 people and this uh this derailment happened at about right now 16 days ago 16 days ago I believe February fourth yeah. was the was the date of the derailment. Um, I think so it was February third, tra- actually, at, at, in the evening. at night. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. I think it was February third at night. Um, a freight train operated by Norfolk Southern Railway Company carrying chemicals including vinyl chloride, butyl chloride, ethyl hexyl acrylate, and ethylene glycol monobutyl ether. It's a mouthful. Cannot believe I got through that. It derailed (laughs) near East Palestine. The train had 150 cars in total. Remember that number because it's going to become late, become important later. Um, Nine of those cars were empty. 141 were loaded. And this train left Madison, Illinois, and it was en route to Pennsylvania. Uh, Conway, Pennsylvania, to be specific. So at 8.55 on February 3rd, the evening of February 3rd, 38 of the 150 cars derailed in East Palestine. 20 of those cars were carrying hazardous materials, and 11 of the cars that derailed were part of those 20. So to to make it clear, 150 cars uh, were in this train, 38 derailed, 11 of those 38 
had hazardous materials. Um, the National Transportation Safety Board is still conducting an investigation into the official cause of the derailment, but we did have early reports and early signs that it's it says and kind of suggests that a faulty wheel bearing on one car might be the, the cause. Yeah, and I think the NTSB is going to be issuing a some type of preliminary report in the next coming days. When they do, we'll... Uh, We'll put an update in the episode, whichever one comes after that. But let's let's talk a little bit about these chemicals because those were a mouthful. I had quite literally never heard of any of them. Full disclosure, I was really fucking bad at chemistry. Just, <laughs> just saying, I was not good at it. I didn't take chemistry after high school because I hated it. In fact, that was one of the reasons why I decided not to be a doctor because you had to take chemistry in college. So take that for what it's worth. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> Vinyl chloride is the one that we've seen the most about. It's uh, five of the, I believe, five of the derailed cars are carrying vinyl chloride, and that's a man-made substance and the key ingredient in PVC. Callie, did you ever have a potato gun? Yes. Nice. Absolutely. Of course. Uh, I also tried to lash together a trebuchet out of PVC once. Ooh, yeah. Lash. It, okay. Boy Scout term. It didn't work. You, it didn't work. Were you a Venture <laughs> Scout? Is that what? You, oh yes. Well, I I was an honorary Cub Scout because I didn't want to be in Girl Scouts, and I loved I loved Boy Scouts. Um, and so I went all the way through with my brother, and we did Boy Scouts together and Order of the Arrow together, and then I was president of the Venture Crew. Yes. Nice. Well, I, I did lash a lot of things. I never had a potato gun myself. Did have a friend in. Uh, elementary school slash junior high that did have one and it blew up in his face and then he got a piece of PVC stuck in his lip. Shout out to Jay Marker. Oh my God. Um, I think it came out eventually. But anyway, that all to say is, is that <laughs> there is probably some vinyl chloride in that. Um, <laughs> it's typically transported in the form of a compressed liquid and it's known to cause cancer and inhalation of it can cause respiratory symptoms such as shortness of breath along with neurological symptoms like headaches and dizziness. Chronic exposure has been linked to liver damage and cancer, and it's important to point out there hasn't, if, from my understanding, from what I've read, there hasn't been a ton of research on any of these chemicals' effect on the exposure to humans. Like, there's just not a lot to go by, but this is just what we know based on what research has been done by people that are smarter than me. Yeah, and there hasn't been, I just want to throw it out there too, that there hasn't been a lot of research on these just generally existing in the environment either. Yes. Um, because nobody has really, you know, thrown tons of it <laughs> into a creek before. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe that hasn't happened already. Um, I, I mean, I'm kind of being sarcastic, but not. <laughs> so the other one that, because I, I don't want to go into detail about all these, I don't think it's super important, but there was one, butyl acrylate, 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 I don't, I don't know, somebody can roast me about it later. One tank car lost an entire load of it, and it's a clear liquid used to make paint, adhesives, and caulk, caulk, C-A-U-L-K, just for all of you out there, um, it's that foam stuff you put into holes, so the caulk you put into holes. <laughs> Expo Look, you gotta find some levity where you can. <laughs> I'm sorry. That one got her. That one <laughs> nailed it. I can't take full credit to that because there's this really funny thing that happened at a soccer practice in high school 
where this kid, his name was Adam Stare, and he was late to practice. And the coach was like, why were you late? And Adam said, I was helping my dad put cock in holes. <laughs> and it was because he was using cocking. So I do like to give credit where credit is due. Oh, man. Thanks, Adam, for that one. That one really got me. Anyway, cocking wasn't in this. It was just like the liquid that they use for it. Um, exposure to this has been known to cause headaches, dizziness, nausea, and irritation to the nose, throat, and lungs. So not a fun time to be breathing in these chemicals. This is kind of the wild part. Uh, and this is the one that, that created all the viral imagery from this is that after this train derailed, a large fire erupted because these are highly flammable, uh, chemicals. And so it sent huge plumes of smoke into the air, created this massive risk of an explosion that would have been triggered by the hazardous chemicals mixed with combustible materials. Uh, not a fun time. So Ohio and, and Pennsylvania's governors at the time, Mike DeWine and Josh Shapiro respectively issued immediate evacuation orders at this time. And that affected roughly 2000 residents living into and in, living in a one to two mile radius or whatever of the area, which is not uh, that so far. T- Think about no. what is a mile from your house. Like, just I just want to say, like, one to two mile Target. radius is not big. No, not big at all. And so, basically, what happened is that in order to prevent a massive explosion, there was some science behind this that that I can't figure out with people in lab coats that figured this out. But the company Norfolk Southern carried out a controlled burn of the vinyl chloride three days after the derailment is basically sent a small explosion in the air. It sent hydrogen chloride and phosphine into the air. Those are the two chemicals, I guess, that are created when you mix these substances together. I don't know. Somebody with a, a math degree or science degree can figure that one out for us. But the point being is that it had to be like a controlled burn in order to mitigate the danger from this. Right. Um, which is, and so this is wild, actually. Um, this is something that I, I hope to dig in deeper to later on once we get a little bit more information about this in future episodes maybe but governor dewine in ohio said that the train was quote not considered a high hazardous material train based on like statutory or regulatory language because some of the cars on the train didn't contain such materials so some of the cars did have those hazardous materials but some of them didn't and because some of them didn't it was not by law technically considered a high hazardous material train and therefore, the company was not required to notify the state that they were even transporting it through Ohio. That is so bonkers. That's uh, one of those where we're going to get into lobbying later. I'm sure that a lobbyist helped ro- help to write that regulation. Oh, yes. I could, I could not find it. I I spent too much time looking. Uh, federal regulations are a bitch to begin with, and the federal rail regulations are just a nightmare to yeah. try to sift through. I'm sure that somebody has, but basically Governor DeWine is calling for congressional reforms to this. I hope that, that actually happens because I, I feel like this is an important thing. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a little bit of the background. Now... Let's talk a little bit about what happened to the community and the environment while this was happening and in the immediate aftermath. So generally, um, these chemicals, like Chuck said, they're unusual and scientists don't really know what level of exposure to vinyl chloride and other compounds is safe. Um, 
or how these chemicals interact with each other or the environment. Um, very helpful, I know. Um, but we do know that some of that, even a little bit of this can be harmful to humans. A number of residents have reported headaches and respiratory problems and dizziness after the derailment, um, which are symptoms that are consistent with exposure to these chemicals. And um, one one thing, just real quick, I don't mean to interrupt you, but oh, you're good. The difficulty with that is that those are pretty general symptoms, and so it's really difficult for people to to establish a causal link to that. Really easy for a company not like Norfolk Southern to be like, well, there's no proof that the leaking of our chemicals caused this, so I don't know. Yeah. Shrug. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out. No, I think that's great. And I'm about to answer your your chemistry question about why they come out differently. Um, Let so it rip. When you burn something, it often changes its chemical makeup um, because it, that's a, a process of, of completely changing what, what the burning is a, is a, is a process that can change chemical makeup. So when you burn vinyl chloride, that is when the hydrogen chloride and phosphogene, you know, all of those, when, um, those, those are, that's what kind of comes out when you burn, when you burn vinyl chloride. So both of those are also very toxic, um, to, uh, they are super, super toxic chemicals. So the, this cloud that you've seen in all of these pictures, um, that looks like a freaking mushroom cloud, um, that is full of, of very very toxic chemicals that's not like a wood burning fire and phosgene just for anybody wondering according to the cdc is a colorless gas with a suffocating odor like musty hay hmm. i sounds... that's a hell of a description yeah that sounds really bad so the big takeaway on on the actual general like what we have here is that we don't know what the long-term effects will be um which is really scary especially for people who were living there i mean that's like terrifying um so let's look at the air specifically <laughs> yeah oh yeah you have all these government officials with these people being like what's gonna happen and they're just like i don't know shrug emoji guess we'll find out right <laughs> congrats on being a guinea pig yeah, well, and this is about to make you feel even better if you live there. Um, so in the early days, there were reports that many pets and that livestock were reported to have died from the expo the exposure. Um, so the chemicals in high concentrations, which is what folks were experiencing directly after. So this was when people had evacuated, um, but there were pets and there were animals left behind. Um, it can burn lung tissue. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of these chemicals are incredibly dangerous. And so a lot of pets and animals died. Uh, so it doesn't feel good to have evacuated your home and to come back to a dead dog in your yard. Um, and they say it's still safe. So um, the chemicals, though, will degrade in the environment. There were some disputes about the animal deaths. I know that there are some reports that went back and forth on it. So there's a lot of anecdotal evidence from people saying that their animals have died. Now there is, uh, and we will get, we will mention it later, but the, there has been a huge problem with fish dying for sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I, that's, I, I, I definitely, I agree. I was just reports of, yeah, these. So, um, the chemicals will degrade in the environment. So they're not forever chemicals, um, which, 
However, the challenge is that many sensors that are used to measure air quality are not very sensitive to these particular chemicals. So it's difficult to say whether or not the air is actually safe and when it will be safe. That's that's probably one of the biggest things, because there has been a lot of um, talk about that and questions being asked about the air quality. And the problem is, is that nobody, at least at the time of reporting, when I was reading, nobody could really say definitively one way or the other. I think that they cleared the air around there as being safe like a week or so after, but there's, it's a lot, jury's kind of out on that, I guess. Yeah. Chuck, do you want to tell us about water? What's going on with the water and the fish? Love water. Big fan. H2O, baby. Uh, you know, lot most of my body, water. Most of our bodies, water. So we, we kind of know a thing or two about it. Yeah. Uh, not really. Well, at least I don't. Anyway, um, what I do know, I read in several news reports. Water. So this is kind of where I think we know a little bit more about what's going on. I think there's been more more research, more studies on how these chemicals have interacted with water. So health authorities, far more equipped to sample harmful chemicals in wells and stream compared to air and test them. People drinking from municipal water are in the clear, according to Ohio's Environmental Protection Agency. But residents who drink private well water, which I don't, I don't have the data in front of me. I would imagine it's a decent percentage. But mm-hmm. people who drink private well water they have to they're being advised to drink from bottled water until they can have their wells actually tested so that's where yeah right yeah so um good luck with that guys if you can find bottled water and you can get it and can afford it um some communities up to 100 miles away in places like fort gay kentucky and huntington west virginia have experienced a gasoline-like smell in their water but authorities haven't established a link to that yet they haven't been able to establish a causal link however that is extremely troubling and i believe i don't know where fort gay is but huntington is right along um i think it's right along the ohio Kanawha river so that would be downstream of Mm -hmm. of where this this took place um Places like Cincinnati, however, are closing their water intake routes, uh, which is is wild. Cincinnati is right on, excuse me, Cincinnati is right along the river, and um, and so they're closing off their intake in order to to not risk contamination, and that's that's a a pretty big sign. I mean, Cincinnati is a huge city. Debatable even on a good day with the Ohio River. I grew up <laughs> right. near it. Uh, I would, you know. To each their own. You're you're taking a risk every time with that shit. I mean, look, I drank I drank from the tap quite a bit growing up. I wasn't happy about it, but I did. Uh, yeah. So there's also I don't even know really what this. I guess there's a plume of butyl acrylate floating down the Ohio River. Yeah. Uh, that's wild. Uh, very you know inspired a lot of confidence. Testing has suggested it's not hazardous to humans anymore since it's been diluted, but unclear what the impact on wildlife will be, which that's a whole other can of worms that we don't have a lot of answers about. Yeah. Oh, Lord. But this is the other thing. So short, And I mentioned this earlier. Shortly after the wreck, wildlife officials reported the death of roughly 3,500 fish. That's a lot. That's a lot of fish. Now, I don't know exactly what that was from, I'm assuming it was from one of the chemicals that leaked in the Ohio River. I don't know which one, but that's extremely troubling. That's a huge ecological impact on yeah. on just the river in general. 
Oh, Lord. But the things to remember for this, unless you get your water straight from the Ohio River, you are upstream. The Ohio River is the bottom of the watershed, so all streams flow toward it. Concerns do still exist. That's important to remember. Some experts are concerned that authorities may not be testing the full range of compounds that could harm humans. And this is, I think, oftentimes what happens in the aftermath of this. There's a lot of rush to to mitigate this problem, to remediate the environmental impact. And we don't always know what 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 all could be happening, what all could be you know, people be exposed to. Um, and this is a direct quote. Uh, it's unclear what chemicals they're testing for in comparison to what chemicals were generated and released. That was from Andrew Welton, an environmental engineer at Purdue University. It's not just the chemicals that leak from the train that are potentially hazardous, but also compounds produced by combustion, like Callie mentioned earlier. And he was very concerned about this. I am too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there. the thing about this that is so upsetting is the sheer weight of the unknowns like when there's an oil spill we kind of know what cleanup might look like we might know a little bit about how much it would cost about how long you need to be away from your homes this is something that is new and it's terrifying to to even think about what the unknowns are because you know you have the, you have this burning blowing in one direction impacting the air you know hundreds of miles in one direction and then you have it flowing in a different direction and it's there are millions of people who are going to be impacted by this eventually and we have no idea what to tell them yeah it's it's pretty um it's pretty troubling it's uh and this is the thing it's like that's the the unknowns are probably the most dangerous thing at this point i, I don't i don't want to say that in Definitely, but it's definitely like probably one of the biggest problems right now. And I think that's got to be frustrating for the people that live there. Yeah, absolutely. Long-term impact. So that's, I think, another thing where the jury's out on it a bit right now. What I've read is that it depends on how fast the cleanup is. And I don't have a good sense of how fast that's going right now. And I don't... I don't think anybody does. Yeah. Yeah. There's not anything out there on it, which is troubling and i i just don't feel comfortable opining on that because i don't want to pretend like i know more than i do um my guess is is that just from the sounds of it it's not as fast as what it could have been but currently contaminated areas are being dug out and creeks are being dammed and pollutants are being removed from the water the exact level of exposure is unclear as are the impacts of the individual chemicals on human health um, scientists also don't know what happens when people are exposed to a combination of chemicals like vinyl chloride and butyl acrylate, like we mentioned earlier. So that's, you know, troubling, great, wonderful. Uh, but one of the most troubling things about this is that Norfolk Southern, who we will be talking about a lot more, don't worry, folks, we have not ignored them. One of the most troubling things is that Norfolk Southern has been put in charge of their own cleanup. Oh, boy. This is, um, it's not good. It's worrisome worrisome because there will not be a third party supervising them that is so bad yeah um when in our history have large corporations uh disappointed us said they were going to do something and then didn't lied about doing something well i could think about ten thousand. yeah probably yeah um, it's very upsetting 
You know, I'd like to get testimony from my bloodstream, which currently has PFAS chemicals flowing in it from drinking Lubeck Public Service District water that was uh, uh, contaminated by DuPont Washington Works and their Teflon plant. Sorry, my blood's not available for comment. (laughs) I would like to comment. Go ahead. Uh, Just R.I.P. When you go, that's what I'm blaming it on, Chuck. I'm going to say when he when he's dead, it's the Teflon. Me? Yeah. Oh, that's morbid. But I mean, yeah. Well, so like what this means is that local journalists, members of the community and other non-official actors will be forced to continue to hold this company to account because apparently at this point, the government is not going to be supervising this. So that's, um, you know, and that's something that's going to be really important. We talk about this later with John is that accountability is going to have to come from multiple angles. Uh, but before we get into all of that, we still have more details to cover uh, the impact on the community. Callie, do you want to take us through that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So an event of this size and magnitude cannot happen without having major impacts on the people who live around there. And uh, there are a few things that we just wanted to hit on to keep in mind as we move forward, just to make sure that we're centering human beings in mm-hmm. this um, and the people who are there. Children in this town have experienced a traumatic event. Um, there, I heard a, a, that there are kids from John, actually, you'll hear it in the interview. There are kids who are running around playing in a town that is filled with workers in hazmat suits. And that, like, that does something to your brain. Yeah. Um, to grow up in a place where somebody else is protected and you're not, what does that say about the value of your life? Um, and the value of your family's lives. So long term, there's there's a traumatic event that has occurred. In addition to that, if we're just looking at the at the cold hard cash property values, which in this town are some of the only equity that people will ever have is in their homes. Um, property values are going to plummet from this, um, mm-hmm. which makes it even harder to liquidate your equity or to leave if families want to leave. There are probably a lot of families who are thinking about it right now, but how can you, I mean, there, if you don't have the resources to uproot your entire life and buy a house that, you know, if in another area, then you're stuck there and you are dealing with these property values that are plummeting because of the malpractice of a corporation, um, which is just heartbreaking uh, because these people, a lot of it, like I said, is this is their only form of wealth in this world. It's just devastating. Um, yeah. And the, the third piece of this is that there were businesses that were destroyed as well. Uh, one example is a garbage truck business owned by a couple that had been in operation for 18 years. They said, quote, it totally wrecked our life. I'm at the point now where I want out of here. We're going to relocate. We can't do it no more. Um, so that impact by itself is there are ripple out effects of that. Now many people throughout the the town of East Palestine aren't getting their trash picked up. I mean, there are so many community impacts that come from these these things, these three things happening um, and in tandem with each other. So we just want to center the human beings who live there and just really make sure that we're talking about the 
human cost of this. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because when we get into this, you know, it's easy to get bogged down in the details, you know, about the chemicals and all the health impacts of that that can come of it. But just like the witnessing of a traumatic event, it it just, it, it messes you up. And this is really devastating. It's really devastating for this community because it's, it, it, you know, it could very, very possibly change this community forever. I think it probably already has. And so it's really important that we keep that in mind and keep these people and their families in mind. Yeah. Regardless of how they fucking voted in an election. Thank you. I don't even, I won't even get into that. The social media bullshit. We're not even going to talk about that. Fuck that. Uh, Instead, let's talk about the government response. (laughs) Fuck that. I mean. (laughs) Much, much more cheerful. Yeah, that's right. So this is something that, I tried to get some information through social media on uh, this past week because there was a lot of controversy surrounding a disaster declaration. And for context, disaster declarations are really a formality so that state and or federal money can be released to help with a current emergency. Um that's like the practical effect of it. And so Fox News and other right-wing outlets had published stories saying that the Biden administration declined to declare a state of emergency slash disaster declaration. And I wanted to look into that because it was only right-wing outlets that were reporting it at the time. And I'm not trying to give the Biden administration a pass. I just wanted yeah. to see if this was legit or if this was misconstruing what was happening. Turns out it was a little bit of both. Mostly misconstruing. Shocker. All right, so I'm going to walk you all through this. This is, to the best of my ability, this is what I found out. And if I'm wrong, please somebody tell me and I will issue a correction. So the (laughs) governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, a um, serial politician from Ohio and a Republican who I was honestly surprised he was still alive when he was running for governor in 2018. I thought that he had gone. I think I mistook him for George Voinovich, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) The governor of Ohio first must request a disaster declaration for East Palestine and the affected region. That is a necessary step to unlock certain federal aid and supplement the separate request for doctors and other medical assistance that the federal government will provide. Um, So DeWine then said that FEMA claimed the area did not qualify for a disaster declaration in part because the railroad company was paying for some residential expenses and because of the lack of damage to personal property after the derailment. Hmm. So my understanding with that is that because the railroad company was paying for some of the expenses, that I guess meant that the federal government could not be involved, or at least that's his relaying of events. And I think that FEMA had signaled something like that when the white house originally put out a statement about the facts of their response to this, they very clearly outlined what NTSB was doing, what the federal highway administration was doing and the department of transportation, everything like that. And basically what they said for FEMA was that FEMA is, is in constant contact with officials in Ohio. They did not spell out anything they were doing, which led me to believe that this was partially true. Well, there's also, so there's some, I guess, culpability to go around because then Governor DeWine, at a 
press conference on Tuesday, February 14th, so a week before this comes out, uh, he had said, and I, it is a direct quote, look, the president called me and said anything you need. I have not called him back after that conversation. We will not hesitate to do that if we're seeing a problem or anything, but I'm not seeing it. Hmm. So he declined to give the White House a call back, which seemed to suggest that he was not pushing very hard for a declaration. However, two days later, that Thursday, Governor DeWine made the formal request for federal assistance. So I just wanted to walk through that because there was a lot of controversy around it and there was a lot of playing the blame game. To be honest with yeah. you, I'm not really sure who's to blame in this. It sounds like there's there's some issues on both the White House and the DeWine administration, but then there's some also some some procedural hurdles. I don't honestly know, and I'm I'm not gonna pretend that I do. So there. Yeah. I think that's a good analysis of it, that there are problems on both ends. To me, um, it makes a lot of sense that you can't call in FEMA without a state declaring an emergency. That's just like how our government is set up. Like the federal government can't come in and just do whatever they want in states. Federalism. Um, right. So um, that, that seems like a state's rights that, issue. That's right, Callie. State's rights. State's rights. And actual states rights issue <laughs> yeah not like uh the civil war which Corey right reinforcer always likes to say oh which state right were you trying to fight for exactly so this actually does seem like a states rights issue um so that makes sense but at the same time i think that fema i i heard some people differentiating this between uh like a hurricane being a quote unquote uh act of god and this being um like an, an accident and i think that there is uh there's some sort of delineation there with fema that it, if i'm you know my hunch is that this particular instance will change FEMA regulations. It's just that right now they can't do anything. Um, and that's shitty. And it doesn't make any sense. Um, but I think that coming from this, we'll see change. Right. And act of God, there is technical... That's like an yeah. actual legal term. Yeah, no, there there is technical legal terminology that relates to that it's not just like a turn of oh, i mean it is a turn of phrase but there is some legality to back that up and so there is yeah I, and i think you're right you're, you're right to point that out because there is some corporate culpability here and i think that that muddies the waters with how the government can respond i'm not sure and again i don't want to act like I'm not wanting to to blame the Biden administration or the DeWine administration. I just I'm not familiar with all the nuances of it. I'm and I'm waiting for more information to come out. Yeah. I mean, if you're asking me, it sounds like both of them fucked up a little bit. I think I'm comfortable saying that because that's the safe route. Yeah. Government yeah. on all levels fucked it up. Well, let's talk about the White House response. What was your your take on this? First like Tell us a little bit about the White House's response and then give your take because yeah. I'm interested to hear what you think. So the mayor of East Palestine told a community gathering this week um, that it took nearly two weeks for anyone from the White House to contact him. Um, That's ridiculous. It's that makes me so angry. It's just like so angry. Um 
EPA Administrator Michael Reagan was the first top Biden administration official uh, on the scene, and that was February 16th. So this is true. This is true that it took them a long time. Um, while visits don't have tangible visits or uh, sorry, tangible fixes involved, they do mean something to residents. And by by a visit, we mean like President Biden should go and survey the damage like he does in hurricanes, like he does yeah, Joe. in floods, like he does in wildfires out west. Like this is a, a normal practice of an American president. My, my complaint is that President Biden found time uh, to go to fucking Ukraine. Fucking even Ukraine. I'm, yes, I'm in support. I just want to say I'm in support of like us supporting Ukraine, but he found time to go there before he went to East Palestine. Ohio's like 10 minutes from Washington. He was closer to Palestine than he was right. to East Palestine. <laughs> I'm just saying, y'all, Biden should have been in East Palestine last week. It should have happened. And like, again, I am supportive of the the ukrainian people's plight and i want to give them weapons but damn biden anyway speaking of presidents former president trump is gonna beat him to the scene which makes me just absolutely lose my mind trump is gonna be visiting east palestine on wednesday um that is that is two days from now um and biden has still not scheduled a trip i just want to like say that again he's still not scheduled a trip my guess here's my guess is that this is tricky territory for the White House and the Biden administration because of the politics involved in the rail strike that was set to happen late last year, but that was kind of like shadily put down with aid from the White House. Um, so with Biden being like so openly pro-union and yet being the kind of president that that put down a strike because of safety conditions and things of that nature um this seems like it might be difficult territory for him but i am i am definitely still pissed that trump is going to go and visit the scene before biden that makes me uh that makes me just like lose my i mind. hate when politics start to make like when you start to make decisions based on politics and I really think that that's what's happening here. Look. Oh, totally. I think it's pretty safe to say that if president Biden makes trip down there, there's going to be some pissed off people and yeah. rightly so. And there's going to be some interactions that are going to be caught on video and it's going to make him look bad. But you know what? Yeah. That comes with the territory of being president of the United States. You don't get to Thank avoid you. the hard parts just because you don't want that like negative soundbite or that bad clip that you know every Republican running for president is going to run in an ad. Yeah. You have Be to be there show and up. show up. Yeah. yeah. It's worse in my opinion it's worse not to because if you go there you're at least there. Yes. I, I agree. I mean, it. there are things that you sign up for when you run for president. And, you know, the thing that comes to my mind, and this is a totally different scenario, but it's the same kind of 
like really hard choice. Like President Obama, when the Newtown shooting at Sandy Hook happened, he went and met with parents that had just lost their six and seven year old kids in a shooting. And he was the father of little girls at the time and he knew he was going to be very emotional he was going to cry there was going to be angry parents there and he still went and you have to have the kind of courage that it takes when you like you know that's not an easy thing and that was not that president obama still talks about that to this day as the most difficult day of his presidency Mm -hmm. this is not newtown this is not that hard and biden needs to show up Agree completely. This is this is in my and I'm I know I'm biased because like this is Appalachia and it's Ohio and it it's very close to where I grew up. I think it's only about two hours, two and a half hours from where I grew up. Going and visiting a place like this means so much more than like to the American people means so much more than going to Ukraine, in my opinion. Like going to Ukraine was important. Don't get me wrong. Um, he could have done that last week, but this is like being there is so important because it shows people in a part of the country that you did not win. Right. You lost pretty heavily that you're still going to show up for them because yeah. look in his, uh, one of his speeches, I don't remember which one, probably all of them when he was in the run up to being president then the night he got elected in his inauguration speech. He has constantly said, I'm going to be the president for everybody for yeah. red America, for blue America. Well, now's your chance to do it, bud. Yeah. And I mean, he hasn't shown up there. Pete Buttigieg hasn't even shown up there. Oh, my don't God. Don't like, started on Pete. Mayor Pete, man. I know he's Secretary Pete, but right now I'm going to address him just, as Mayor Pete. Just, he needs to be there. Like, this is, it's his baby. I mean, he's, yes. he's been ushering this infrastructure bill in. He should be there answering questions as to why nothing's been done yet. I mean, I guess. He should good- have taken charge day one. He should have. I mean, it would have cleared Biden if he had actually gone. Absolutely. And said, I am planting myself in this community until this problem is solved. Like if you send a cabinet member that is as well known as Pete, like that would have completely I would have had no problems. But I have major problems with how Pete Buttigieg has handled this situation or not handled the situation um yeah that's that has been a a humongous flub of the administration yeah so i would just like to say that if you look at his public schedule the most recent public engagements for him are from the week of january 23rd through february 4th now i don't know if that's like a a normal practice but it's awful damn suspicious that it it stops a day after that derailment. And it says last updated Friday, February 17th. So, and I know that he was speaking at a like National Association of County Officials or something conference, I think on the 15th. He very, he, there's nothing on his schedule that he could not have canceled to come and make an appearance here. Nothing. And people want to see him there. Yeah. That's the thing. He makes time to go on Fox News all the time. All the time. Go see the fucking people, man. Like, this is what pisses me off. Like, thankfully, EPA Administrator Michael Regan came, granted it was two weeks after this happened, but at least he was there. And honestly, it shouldn't be on him. No, I, I just want to say that. I, I want to give him props because this is this is not on him. It is on 
the president. It is on the transportation secretary and the EPA. They are constantly the punching bag of the entire the entire country. Yeah. And and lots and lots of politicians. And the fact that he did come out and was like, this matters to me, like major, major props to him because the EPA should be there, but it shouldn't be their job to be the first on the scene. That's crazy. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, we should probably move on to Norfolk Southern's response to this. Oof. And uh, so we'll we'll talk about that. We'll we'll give a little bit of a, a little bit on JD Vance, and then we'll dive into why this all happened. And that's where the real meat and potatoes is. But Norfolk Southern, we just want to say here at the outset that um, they have made and deleted multiple offers and press statements that conflict with each other. So initially. And these are all like we, we have social media posts that that um, took off on these uh, and credit to Cali for being on top of this in the beginning. Norfolk Southern issued a press release saying that they would set up a family assistance center, but didn't provide any details about it while mentioning they would give twenty five thousand dollars to support the Red Cross and their temporary community shelters. After public backlash, they scrubbed that press release. Like, literally, if you go on, it, it has no reference to the $25,000 anymore. And I looked because you can go in the Wayback Machine and the Internet Archive and look and see where it did before. Uh, they issued a new press release uh, several days later announcing that their family assistance fund distributed over a million dollars to families and businesses impacted by the train re- derailment. Still not enough. And somebody pointed out in the comments that that this charitable fund could possibly be um, could possibly avoid being taxed by the IRS, which I think is a really uh, interesting Shame. and awful goddamn convenient thing for them to just be able to do this. But that's the country we live in and the shitty tax code. Uh, they issued a remediation plan to the EPA on February 10th. Uh, to be honest with you, I didn't dive too deep into it. Um, they helped to plan a local town hall, though. Uh, which our friend John, which we'll get to that interview later, attended. Uh, but they bailed on it because they were too worried about the safety of their employees. Mm. Didn't seem to care much about the safety of the people that actually live there. Yeah. Yeah. I Crazy thought. Yeah. I, that's, that is just like so textbook corporate America. Hell yeah. <laughs> that they're like, we're putting... They advertised it. They put out all kinds of media about it and they backed out what it was like three or four hours before oh yeah no it people was people were already like lined up um just cowardly who who was running their pr shop because like who looked at them and said this will be a good idea let's back right. out of it i mean look i know you don't want the sound bites of you being there but show the fuck up their ceo came like a couple days ago but it was after conveniently after a town hall so they didn't have to be questioned in front of a bunch of people Right. Do the fucking hard job. That guy gets paid tens of millions of dollars, I bet, a year. If you get paid that much money, you have to do the hard parts, too, instead of just, you know, going and sucking the dick of all your shareholders. So he gets paid $4 million a year, but he's worth hundreds of millions. Sure that he gets a lot of, of, of stock bonuses and stuff that make his compensation package even higher than four. Yep. Anyway, um, speaking of sucking up to people that they don't actually care about, let's talk really quickly about J.D. Vance. Who has 
played a shockingly small role in all of this. Shockingly ineffective and stupid one at that. Very <laughs> yeah. shocking. I first of all, like it pains me every time I see Senator next to his name, and mm. I will never get over that. It's just really sad. But unfortunately, he did win that race. We are not election deniers here on this show. We are not. Uh, we're not stop the Steelers. Um, we're just bitter. Yeah, exactly. We're just bitter, and that's okay. <laughs> You're allowed to be. Uh, we've got to talk about old J.D. just a little bit. He attempted to be a Republican senator, but wasn't very good at it. Or maybe, depending on how you look at it, he was really good at being a Republican senator. I don't know. So he had this video where he visited a contaminated stream. You could tell it was contaminated because it had that like glossy rainbowish glow, like if you spilled gasoline or something into water. Mm -hmm. Uh, which in most instances, this would be good. It's good to show people what the actual environment looks like. But it's JD, so first of all, it's clouded and bullshit. Second of all, he looked like, it was was very performative the way that it came off, because he was like, well, Biden's going to do something about this. And uh, he did it in his church clothes, basically. It looked like he had had a a brand new crisp uh, uh, Brooks Brothers shirt on. And also, so in this video, he says... Somebody needs to do something about this. And I'm like, you're the goddamn fucking senator. It's the banana costume meme all over again. He does this every fucking time. We're trying to figure out who's got the authority to do anything here. You're a United States senator. Yeah, it was. It's just unbelievably perfect that he would say something like that we can't allow these people to be forgotten you're the person that needs to not forget them. yeah don't worry he'll write a book about how brave he was in east palestine and he'll call it hillbilly trilogy or something uh <laughs> so and he also criticized pete Buttigieg. Hillbilly tragedy yeah hillbilly tra- that's right oh good. Yeah. good job that and that'll really really get the people fired up Um, He tried to criticize Pete Buttigieg when Buttigieg correctly pointed out that the Trump administration loosened train safety rules, uh, which we will be talking about very shortly. And he said, stop blaming Trump. What a what a my daddy's going to beat up your daddy. That's that. And I like the energy. (laughs) I like to imagine that was the tone, too. Right. Like my dad's going to beat up your dad. Just you wait. Yeah. And really, Trump is his daddy because he's the only reason that uh, he won the Republican primary. So yep. there's a lot of truth to that. J.D. Mandel. <sighs> J.D. Mandel. What a what a classy guy. Let's get into like the real interesting parts here. Why this happened. So. This is all you. This is your, your baby right here. I'm so excited about. Okay. So. I want to talk about Norfolk Southern's impact on the government. So I did a little digging and in 2021, which are the numbers that we have the most recent uh, accurate picture of Norfolk Southern reported expenses on its quarter federal lobbying reports using the lobbying disclosure act method. Um, If the tax method was used, Norfolk Southern's corporate political contribution and lobbying expense for 2021 would total to four million three hundred and sixty thousand dollars so that is an enormous sum of money enormous um that that is such a that kind of money can buy you so much power um and it has so they employ 36 federal registered lobbyists um they have 
also have contracts with 27 what are called revolvers. So a revolver is a kind of common practice of government regulators, congressional staff, and even members of Congress who take new jobs with lobbying firms and private sector organizations that they used to oversee. So this means that they are employing people who worked in the transportation sector in administrations or worked for Congress or worked for different committees that oversee transportation. Um, and that is a lot of insider baseball that they have access to. I'm going to just let you react to all of that. Well, some of you will recall when we did our series on opioids, Purdue Pharma and Cardinal Health and Amerisource Bergen, all these peddlers of pills would do this with like the DEA, for example. And this is common in many industries where you'll have a pretty high-ranking official in a regulatory agency that regulates that company. Uh, so in this instance, it would be the federal high, or the, the Department of Transportation or the, the Railroad Administration, right? People who know the ins and outs of the government, they have the relationships there. And they'll say, hey, you're getting this government salary. It maxes out at like, $180,000 a year. What if the good people at Norfolk Southern offered you $400,000 a year to come work for us? That is a right. hard offer to turn down. And I hate it. It is. Now, there was, I mean, there was an attempt to like put some regulations on this. I think during the Obama administration, they had a, a revolving door lobbyist moratorium of like it was like two years or something. I think it was for members of Congress, though. Yeah, yeah it was it was um, a little bit weak. There were yeah. uh, a lot of Democratic candidates when there was a primary like uh, for the presidency when Joe Biden was running. There was a lot of talk about this. And uh, Elizabeth Warren had kind of the most stringent reforms that she wanted to put in place. And I think hers was eight years uh, and, and it did not just have to, do, it was any, any lobbying. Um, and it was people who worked in administrations. Yeah. So there's a lot of talk about reform on this side, but right now it's kind of just like the jungle out and, there. And this is a huge problem. It pisses me the fuck off because this is like legalized government corruption in a way you're it, really, yeah. it's not the corruption is not the right word. It's bribery. Uh, is legalized bribery because yeah. you're saying, listen, I'm going to give you this amount of money. You're going to leave the government, but you're going to leverage all of your contacts, all of your knowledge for our benefit. So we're they're essentially buying a chunk exactly. of the government in a way. And um, yes, this is crony shit. I hate it. I hate it so much. But I mean, it ha this is this is how yes. Washington especially works. But this is really how most levels of government work. And in some instances, it can be a good thing. But for corporate stuff like this it's just bad yeah it's nasty yeah. and it gets really complicated because there are industries where it makes sense to move in and out of government roles like if you are a scientist and you work at a national lab so like the the nuances here are really difficult to regulate um so anyway lobbying i just want to say this lobbying is such a bad word it's like a, a word that ha has a very heavy connotation to it but lobbying on its own is not a bad thing. There are, there are amazing lobbyists who do incredible Including work. Including Kelly Pruitt. Um, and I was a lobbyist, uh, and I was very proud of my work. Um, but it's all about what and who you lobby for. Mm -hmm. So 
most of the disclosed attempts to influence Ohio leaders. So we're we're starting on on this like a there's there are federal lobbying, state lobbying. Sometimes they overlap, um, but to influence Ohio leaders came on generic rail or transportation issues. Some efforts, though were devoted to defeating legislation that would have established tougher safety standards for rail yards and train operators. And this really requires a an entirely different podcast to like suss through all of those bills. I mean, it's like thousands of pages because they bury this shit. It's like it's how it's how these big bills get passed is that you bury things in them. So I did more digging, though, and they Norfolk Southern in 2022 they had to report to the Senate what bills they were lobbying on, and they were lobbying on nine, which is actually kind of a small number for such a big corporation. Um, and so they were lobbying on nine federal bills, including appropriations bills, which that is basically who decides. There's a, They have the pot of money. It's already been given to them, um, and they decide where that's going. Um and uh, there are joint resolutions, which are often just statements. So you'll hear about a joint resolution to honor this person or that person. So those are usually um, not they don't have like actionable things for the government to do. Um, they lobbied on the Freight Act uh, and other larger omnibus bills. So really, the only like very specific one was the Freight Act. Um and I looked that one up and the it, it's a it's um, an acronym. So F-R-E-I-G-H-T actually stands for facilitating relief for efficient intermodal gateways to handle transportation act. So that was at the federal level um, for Ohio political donations. In all, the railway company has contributed about $98,000 during the past six years to Ohio statewide and legislative candidates, um, according to data from the Secretary of State of Ohio. That is what is on the record. We talk about this with John later and when we interview him. That is stuff where you have a max out donation. This is not an independent expenditure, which we've talked about on the show before, too. So independent expenditures are like if you run an advertisement um, or if you contribute to a super PAC that does not coordinate with a campaign, um, that stuff doesn't have to be disclosed. This is just disclosure disclosed uh information um virtually all of that ninety eight thousand dollars went to republicans um although norfolk southern hedged its support for dewine in 2018 with a three thousand dollar check to richard cordray who was the democratic candidate um I think this is just a very interesting note. Norfolk Southern describes its criteria for campaign donations on its website, saying, quote, we make political contributions when we determine them to be in the best interests of the corporation. All political spending reflects the railroad's interests and not those of individual officers or directors. So they say the quiet part out loud, folks. They are not looking out for their workers. They're not looking out for the community. They're not looking out for the betterment of the country. They are looking out for what is best for the corporation. And that is just the truth of it. Well, I mean, they're really uh, they're really showing their their hand. I mean, and it's pretty obvious when you look at their business practices. Yeah. 
So um, also in here, just a note about stock buybacks. Um, instead of using money to enhance the safety of trains or hire more employees, Norfolk Southern paid their shareholders $4.7 billion with a B uh, dollars in stock buybacks and dividends. So this company is not short of cash, y'all. They just are short of compassion. And I believe that was in 2022. Let's talk a little bit about the train itself. So we're getting into the why here. We talked a little bit about Norfolk Southern. We will be talking about them more soon. But the train itself. Okay, so we said that one of the potential causes, the likely cause, was a faulty um, brake or bearing that melted or something like that. So this train they were using had actually broken down before. The actual train that derailed it experienced issues prior to the derailment and actually broke down at least once before this happened. And they were quoted as using, quote, Civil War era brakes. I don't know how literal that is, but I mean, they were clearly very dated. Civil War era values. That's Civil it. Civil War era brakes. States rights. There you go. This is also <laughs> interesting. See, I don't I don't know much about the rail industry whatsoever or trains, but employees that were interviewed said that there were concerns among those working on the train about the train's excessive weight and length. So it was 151 cars long, which was 9,300 feet and roughly 18,000 tons, 18,000 tons and 36 million pounds. That's a lot. Certainly more than I weigh. Employees said that 150 cars is too long and that the weight of the train contributed to the severity of the derailment. And this is backed up by the former Federal Railroad Administration administrator, Sarah Feinberg, who said the train was super long and that she had expressed concern in the past at trains that were 80 to 90 cars long. And this train was 50 percent longer than that. Yeah, this is uh, this is basic physics, people. Uh, objects in motion will stay in motion unless acted upon by an, an outside force. So these trains, the, the, the cars that were so heavy are pushing forward, acted upon by friction on the rails, but they're pushing forward at such speed that that's what caused the derailment likely is the weight of the cars behind that are that is pushing up and bowing the, the actual train yeah, itself. Yeah, and if you can imagine all of that just colliding it i mean it's a wonder that that no more cars derailed than what did honestly um yeah this is just like as you'll find out this is all because of money the more cars that you can put on a train the more money you're gonna make essentially because you're being more efficient you don't have to run as many trains and um the more that you can put on these cars that's why it was so heavy and then here's another thing the less employees that you have to use and the more hours you can make them work, the more money in shareholder pockets because employee fatigue is a huge, huge thing. Now, John gets into a little bit about the rail strike that happened earlier this year. I, I Actually, I think it was late last year. Um, and it had to do with issues just like this. The workers were exhausted. This is a quote from one employee. The workers are exhausted. Times for car inspections have been drastically cut, and there are no regulations on the sides of the trains. And, and employees at, at Norfolk Southern don't even get paid sick time, which is ridiculous. That's just like a whole other issue. That's just crazy. Oh, yeah. it's. I had no idea how poorly these employees were treated, but this is just insane. And then it's disgusting. the industry at large is 
in a huge problem. I keep saying, I, I keep referencing our interview, and it's really good. And, and John knows a lot more about this stuff than, than Callie or I do. But there is an industry-wide practice that was implemented um, several years ago to cut costs and increase profits, which is partially to blame for this. It's called the precision schedule railroading. It's been widely adopted the past few years to increase efficiency, reduce costs. This this led to longer trains and an overall staff decrease of about 28% among the biggest railroad companies. So they could cut staff, make them work longer hours, get more train, more cars on the train, and 28% is a huge, yeah, that, I, that is, that is massive. That's almost a third of your workforce. That's a, that's crazy. It's unreal. And it's led to fewer and shorter inspections of these train cars. I think the inspections on average were cut in half. So maybe if the inspections were longer, yeah. they could have caught one of the problems with this, this, uh, um, car that ended up causing the derailment. We don't know, but this is just really, really disappointing. And, and and it's just yeah the pieces of this puzzle are coming together the many many failures that caused this like this is what we're getting to is that this is not an isolated act of god accident this is this is dereliction of basic principles of of running a company and of running a state and of running a country i mean it is. It really is a. It speaks to the failure on so many fronts. Again, it's all about money. It's all about corporate greed, and it's all about Norfolk Southern's corporate greed. Look, they, the railroad industry has been facing pressure for years because of the trucking industry and the air freight industry in order to maximize their profits and get more business. So. The faster they can run those trains, the more products that they can ship on those trains, that they can beat out other um, other overroad trucks, other other semi trucks, and and you know airplanes that carry um, uh, air freight. Then the better off they are, and the more profitable they are. But that's the expense of the people that are actually the workers, and that's really the big story with this, in my opinion. It's. It's the corporate greed that's getting in the way. And yes, there are government issues. In fact, one of the ones that we want to bring up to sort of like to kind of tie this all together um, was a withdrawal from break rules that the Trump administration uh, did in 2017. The Department of Transportation under Donald Trump withdrew uh, from electronically controlled pneumatic brakes a pneumatic brake rule that basically required the use of these brakes, these specialized brakes um, on trains that were carrying flammable liquids. They argued that the safety benefits were inconclusive and the cost benefit analysis was negative. So basically they rescinded this regulation so that it would save rail companies money so that they didn't have to use these specialized brakes on these hazardous uh, material train cars. Now we can't say one way or the other yet, if that was a leading cause of this derailment, because we, we don't have the full report from the NTSB. This is all it really is. It's so upsetting. And and it's not this goes to show it's also not under one party. No. Um, you know, there's fault to be to be shared Absolutely. between Democrats and Republicans. And, and this is this comes down to you're right. Co- corporate greed. Also, political expediency. You know, what it what it, what can I do to make it a little bit easier for this corporation? What can I do to make it a little bit give them a tax break here? Give them a, a regulation break there. Um, that happens all the time. So it's it's about it's about money, power 
and and political expediency. This is just it's it's so sad. It's sad, and that that I mean that's a perfect way to put it because that stew of greed and bullshit is the perfect um, the perfect list of ingredients for a disaster like this. You know, it's not the people in East Palestine's fault. Certainly, it's not you know the the rail the the train operators fault the conductors fault or the people working on the tracks is the fault of the people that are in the cushy offices at Norfolk Southern headquarters that are taking private jets everywhere that have probably not even set foot on one of those trains or let alone driven one at least not for long and it's also the fault of the people that are in the high ranking offices in government that are allowing this to happen those are the people to blame thus we have landed at the end of our drive <sighs> There is one listener testimony, though, that I did want to mention before yeah. we get into our interview. Let's do it. Uh, and this is this is submitted to us on Twitter. This person chose to remain anonymous, uh, but they gave us permission to share this information. Uh, this is a person who lives in Beaver County, Pennsylvania. Um, it, they said it's about eight miles southeast of East Palestine. Uh, so they're pregnant, and they're concerned with what they might be exposed to. Uh, they said... Yeah, absolutely. They said the immediate major immediate danger, in their opinion, was handled in an okay way by evacuating people in the vicinity close to the derailment, and they were disheartened by the clickbait misinformation swirling online. People have claimed that animals hundreds of miles away have died or that all their pets in the area are dead, and it's just totally not helpful, is what they said, um, which that's fair. Those are, yeah. you know, and this stuff has been swirling around ever since this happened. They said what needs to happen is thorough, regular testing, not clickbait, not people telling them to all leave or they'll die of cancer. Uh, the leave your home, there's no reason to stay there, you're going to die. Yeah, it's not helpful. Uh, and stronger regulations and unions to prevent this from happening again, which I completely agree. Yeah. A stronger union could have prevented this. That is factual. And I want to say, like, not necessarily a stronger union, but more support for union efforts, especially for the rail strike, is is what I should say. Right. Um, and that that that's on a lot of people. That's on a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans. It sure is. Yeah. We tried to cover this as best as we could. We're not journalists. We were just seekers of the truth, and we tried oh. to. I. <laughs> that sounded like we have like an eagle in our logo or something. We're Alex Jones truth seeker. I'm just looking I'm just looking for answers. Right. I'm just asking questions. That's all I'm right. doing. That's all I'm doing. Fuck Alex Jones. No, I mean we're we're just we're just trying to both really we're just trying to curate information and, and help yeah. people understand what's what's really happened, what's actually happened, and who might be to blame. And honestly, not looking great for Norfolk Southern, I'll tell you that. Yeah, if we're looking at, at, at who are the, who's the main person to blame, I would definitely point the finger straight at them. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's get into our interview. It's a great one. We've got John Russell on. He is a independent journalist. He is a TikTok star. I'll call him that. I don't think he'd call himself that, but I will. And um, uh, he also publishes the very great Substack, A Holler, Ohio Valley. He's a great guy. Uh, he is from that area. Um, I can't remember what the name of the town is that he said he's from. I'm totally blanking on it. But he is from the East Palestine area. He's very familiar with it. He right now lives about an hour away from there. He's been on the ground pretty much since day one and even before. Uh, he covered the rail strike 
pretty extensively. He's talked to people on the ground ever since this derailment happened, and he's got a lot of perspective from that to share. We thought it was important to hear from somebody who's been on the ground and actually talking to people. So I, yeah. I thought it was really great to have him, and I really, I really appreciate his perspective a lot. Yeah, his journalism is fabulous. And and it was really good to, you know, he he confirmed a lot of what we wanted to talk about today and, and making sure that we are doing the right. We're taking on the right angles and that we're taking on the right issues. Um, so it was, it was really great to have him on. Absolutely. So let's get into it. And uh, we'll hear from John. It actually didn't dawn on me until uh, I saw you post some stuff, but like you're you're located like right near East Palestine, right? Yeah, I mean, where I live right now is Bridgeport, Ohio. It is an hour and about 15 minutes to get up there. But where I grew up is there. I mean, I went to the East Palestine homecoming. I have... You know, when I went up to that town hall and I was standing in line, I hadn't really talked to many people. I met six or seven people that I went to, you know, county fairs with, the county career center. I, I know people in East Palestine. Yep. That's, I mean, that's helpful because I think uh, there's so many people that are talking about this that aren't from there, that don't know much about the region. Like, to some extent, ourselves included, I mean, we know a lot about the region. We're not from that area. So it's really helpful to have someone like you give that real perspective. And I'm wondering, you've been doing videos, you've been talking to people. What are your initial reactions after this? Like, what are people in East Palestine thinking? What are they saying? Like, what, what are, what's the feeling on the ground right now? Um, I think there's a lot of, uh, all eyes are on Norfolk Southern and really their, their lack of response to this. I mean, I think, so much has happened, uh, but what stands out to me is the most recent town hall. I mean, this is a $55 billion company, a massive monopoly, very influential in how the entire country is run, um, that detonated a train full of hazardous chemicals um, in town and uh, helped plan a town hall meeting that they ended up canceling on. When I was up there talking to people, a lot of folks wanted to know um, many things, but how is this going to be made right? I mean, I've done a lot of community interviews and a lot of people there are in very tough situations. This is a small rural town. It's got 5,000 residents. Um, you know, I grew up in that county and a lot of those towns are the same. Um, good good paying jobs, a decent economy, uh, a, a path forward to a lot of people has been getting tougher and tougher uh, with each passing year for 40 years. I mean, this area of the country was uh, reliant on manufacturing when we, when we you know, passed NAFTA and free trade, that was the first major shock. And now you fast forward all the way up to this date and I'll just give you one example of talking to somebody in the community. This person was probably in their mid fifties, uh, less than half a mile away from this blast zone. Uh, she was making $13 and 50 cents an hour, uh, raising her grandkids. And, uh, you know, she's 
in her home and the property value has been destroyed because of this Norfolk Southern disaster, a person like that wants to know how they are going to be made whole. But so far, uh, we haven't got a lot of answers or anybody that's really at a high decision-making level for Norfolk Southern that has shown up in town to be held accountable to answer questions. So I think that's, that's of the many things happening here, that's probably one of the big ones. What, how is Norfolk Southern going to make this right? When are they going to show up and be held accountable? Yeah, that's I, I that's such a reasonable ask. Like it 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 go it doesn't even go to like reparations yet or or like anything beyond it. It you just this this you know showing up and that's the very bare ass minimum that they could do. I'm I'm a little curious. I I want to give folks because we've heard a lot of about the train derailment and how that's impacted people. But I really want to give people kind of um, a little bit of color for what the town was before this. Um, mm -hmm. Could you, could you just kind of, is this a town like everybody knows everybody, mm -hmm. like just give us a little bit of color for the town that, that this real people, real, you know, real high school reunions and, and county <laughs> fairs. I'm, I'm just curious yeah. about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you my experience growing up in Columbiana County. Um, a lot of the towns, like I mentioned, are the same in this county. I mean, the East Palestine's 5,000 people. Where I grew up, Wellsville is 3,500 people. Columbiana County is, uh, you know, a rural county that uh, has probably 15 or 20 towns like that. And the thing that really stands out to me growing up there is um, the – I'm sure you get a different answer from everybody you ask, but the, the county fair was such a social event. You know, um, the high schools in this area are kind of in a weird place. Um, they are big enough to still have their own, you know, individual school districts, uh, but, they're, but they're so small that your graduating class, like my graduating class was 55 people. East Palestine's about the same size. So when, when it's like that, uh, you end up making a lot of friends from, uh, with other people in different towns in this county. And a lot of those you know, come together in the county fair. So that's how I knew most of the people um, in East Palestine. I went to you know, their, uh, their school dance. And it is like that. I mean, these small towns are uh, pretty tight knit. A lot of people know everybody else. Uh, a lot of people know uh, other folks in towns in the immediate vicinity. And it's a great place to grow up. I mean, what else are you going to say? It's, it's uh, you know, a, a tight knit place and you hate to see uh, something with such long term consequences happen, you know especially in a, in a place that's close to home, to say the least. You mentioned long-term consequences, and I definitely want to get into that. But what's, um, what's your sense of people's feelings towards going back? I know some people that were able to leave left, at least for a couple weeks or something like that. I know that there's a lot of trepidation around drinking the water or, you know, even taking a bath or taking a shower. What's, what's been the communication like? Are there, are there, you know, are there federal agencies present on the ground? Does it seem like anything's being done to remediate this? What, what's your sense on that? Oh yeah, it's, it, it's pretty tough. And uh, the mistakes are all over the place. 
Um, I think, first of all, a lot of people are in a really tough situation. They weren't making much money to begin with. Um, like I mentioned, uh, you know, you, you can work really hard. You can do the best that you can. But if the options in your area um, to be paid well for working hard uh, are very limited, that's something that's kind of beyond your control. And that's definitely been the case for this part of the country for a long time. So you have uh, people in a disaster zone that weren't making much to begin with, um, who have the pressure to return back to work uh, where they weren't making much to begin with, and uh, who have to navigate now. You know, if you own a home that was within a mile of where this train full of hazardous chemicals was detonated, what's the resale value of your home? Uh, if you wish to relocate out of there, I mean, what are your options really to do that in a market system where, where nobody else is going to step in and compensate the value of your home? We don't have an answer on who, if anybody, is going to you know, do that and make that possible uh, for people. I think uh, there's been a lot of one of the things that stands out just talking to community members, I've heard people say the agencies that are here are kind of talking in circles. On the one hand, I mean, I'll, I'll give you experience from the town hall that I went to up there. Uh, here you have a United States congressman, the Ohio EPA, um, the, the town mayor officials all in the same room of this high school saying, you can go back, you can drink the water, and you know the, these tests are being made available to you, but in that very room in the high school, uh, there are red plastic devices that say danger all, all over them with a padlock over the water fountains in the high school. And that's the place where you are being told that it's, that it's safe to go back home. So I think it's fair to say a lot of people have some questions about that. There's also two, the angle, that when you look back in history over events like this, and I mean, you, you guys are familiar with Dark Waters and Parkersburg and, you know, name any one of them. You don't really know the consequences of this until a much later date. And unfortunately, to uncover that, that really relies on a lot of independent journalists, on enterprising citizens who are not going to give this up, on questioning, you know, official line that's coming out and staying on this story over the long term. Um, so I think any worries that people have are, are really fair. Um, there's additional complications here. I mean, infrastructure in the, in the region, just take water infrastructure, for example, wasn't that great to begin with before this disaster. Um, so just on all accounts, I think there's a lot more, even before this disaster that was owed to this area. And, um, you know, now that, now that we have this, there's, a, there's, there's even more on top that, uh, you know, I think the company in this case in, in all of the agencies that have showed up, they need to be held accountable uh, to a higher degree. Speaking of like just getting information out to folks, um, I was reading up on on the town and some statistics. And one of the statistics that really stood out to me was that 35% of people don't have access to internet in the town. Um, mm. And that's where, that's where you get <laughs> all of these warnings and that's where you get access to, you know, the news and, and sources like that. So um, 
with regard to that type of access, I mean, how are is this word of mouth? I mean, 35 percent is a big chunk of people who don't have access to, you know, the Twitter updates that their congressman is is posting or things like that. So that's one of the things I think is most striking about this. And also one of the things that other Appalachian communities can really relate to is what is information sharing? Yeah. Well, I think um, the good part about a small town is that there's a lot of communication, uh, you know, before the internet even came there. I mean, that's one of the good parts about being in a small, tight-knit community is that um, information still travels even if even if you don't have the internet. But I think the, the thing that that question really raises is zooming out and looking at just how the whole system has failed regions of the country like this on multiple fronts. We don't have internet. The water infrastructure wasn't great. And then a train full of hazardous chemicals detonated and made it much, much worse. Um, residents will tell you that a day after this train derailed, the company had tracks there ready to pave it over and make the trains run on time again. And that's what they did. At the press conference that I went to where that reporter was arrested, the evacuation order was lifted. Moments after that, trains were running through town. Uh, what residents have told me is that they rebuilt the track right over the uh, spill zone and are running tracks directly over what was spilled, whatever that is. And I think you can see that if nobody made this an issue, this company will blow up a train uh, of chemicals in your town and they'll pave over it and they'll go right back to making money. And it's just another piece of evidence of how this system that runs the entire country um, just really doesn't care about places like this and will just as soon leave them behind and go back to making money before showing, putting, showing up in the town or being held accountable in any way. Um, if you look at any sect sector of the economy, uh, we're failing on internet in this part of the country. We're failing on healthcare in this part of the country. We're failing on getting a decent paths to financial security in this part of the country. Um, the, 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 the way this whole system is run creates a lot of, uh, of casualties in its wake and they live in towns in, like East Palestine, Ohio. And I think we really have to question uh, how much longer are we going to put up with that until we really uh, start to look at our politics and say, this is much less about left and right and much more about who has power, who has money, and who doesn't. Because until we start uniting on those class lines and banding together as a region with interest in common, we're going to see companies uh, with a lot of money to make blow up a train in our town and just pave right over it and go back to it. Yeah, you bring up a good point. I think the the crux of this all centers back around Norfolk Southern. I mean, you've talked about precision scheduled railroading in the past before, the, the method where they basically have just ran their employees into the ground, the ones that still work for them, the ones that weren't shit canned from that, and, and making these people just work their themselves to the bones, which is really evident of the fact that they just pay, literally papered over this tragedy and tried to keep running through. 
it's just really it's really disheartening because I think a lot of times some of the the discourse online completely ignores Norfolk Southern like it's like a Republican problem or a Democrat problem. And certainly politicians share some of the blame. But like you said, when you go back and you look at this, this company is really the one that, you know, if you if you look for a fault, they certainly have a strong case to make for it. I mean, you look at like some of the regulations or some of the the um, suggested, let's say, um, I'm trying to look for the word for it, amount of cars that can be on a single train. It was something like like the last federal railroad administrator said, like, I would never want a, a train with more than 80 cars. This one had over 100, it had like 150, yeah. you know, and and it's just like to me there's so much negligence and there's so much um so much corporate greed that's that's driving this for lack of better metaphor train forward that it's hard to imagine how you stop that what what did your sense as far as like people who do live in this community and, and people who want to to be involved and want to stay with this what what what's the best thing that they can do right now well um, I, I think <clears throat> one of the best things to do, there, there, there's all kinds of answers to that question. Um, but I hope we use this um, as a lesson to really pay attention to what workers themselves in these industries are saying. Um, and this, uh, you brought up precision schedule railroading, and I want everybody listening to really know that that is the angle that they should really look at the story through. Um, most of the media that, and I, and I hope we can talk about this because there's really a lot to talk about. Most of the media uh, that was at the press conference when I showed up there, they were asking basically one question. How much cancer are we gonna get and when are we gonna get it from this derailment? And not why this event happened. Because if you start looking into why this event happened and that's a lot of the coverage I'm gonna do, I'm gonna follow the NTSB report. But why I started making videos in the first place was I was talking to rail workers weeks and months before this happened, back when they were thinking of going on strike, the rail strike that what never was. And you brought up a lot of the issues that they were talking about, being worked to the bone, uh, not having enough people to do the job, safety, training, maintenance, all these things. So when you talk to rail workers, what you'll hear about is precision scheduled railroading. This practice uh, has been adopted by most of the major railroads. And there's not an, a, a section of how trains run that is not affected by this practice. And what it does is it saves a bunch of money and it does that a couple of ways, by cutting staff, by doing more work with less people, by running trains longer, by forgetting, uh, you know, it matters a lot how you build a train, um, how, how heavy the cars are on that train and where they are. Typically, you know, before this, there would be a lot of decision-making power on workers to safely place the trains uh, in terms of weight. But now with things like precision scheduled railroad, it's less uh, safely placing the cars according to weight and placing the cars wherever makes the most money to unload them the quickest. That was a factor in this derailment. Um, down to braking systems, those are affected by PSR. I mean, before you had alerts going to people on the train when something went wrong. Now you have a system where the first alerts are going to a central dispatch location. So 
sometimes, and we'll find out if this is the case, something's going wrong on the train, but the crew on the train doesn't actually hear about it until it's much too late. Um, precision scheduled railroading has cut the staff monitoring the territories of all the trains so that there's less people monitoring more territories and more things that are going wrong, which might lead to uh, things falling through the cracks. See what I'm saying? So uh, precision scheduled railroading, this, this thing that governs the entire industry affects all the ways that things can go wrong. And it has piled up money for these companies. Just last year, Norfolk Southern bought back $10 billion worth of their own stock. And if you extend that, that was just last year, if you look back at the past decade, it's triple digit millions, right? So this company is making so much money and the way it's making it is increasing the chance that something like this will happen. And it might be East Palestine one day and it might be your town the next day. So how do we really change this? I think it is, um, if we could rewind, it would be going back and listening to the rail workers when they were saying this, supporting them to go on strike, standing with them in solidarity, shutting down the entire country until we get railroads that are safe. I think that's the biggest thing that we can do and go forward from this accident and, and really realize that the only course of action we have against powerful companies are strength in numbers. You know, nobody's gonna come and save us here. We have to band together the, the only thing these, these companies answer to is power. And we have to band together, support rail workers when they're going on strike, organize if you work in a major Fortune 500 company, organize with fellow coworkers, because uh, that's really the only tool we have is, is strength in numbers. Yeah, I, that's, that's so fascinating. I mean, I, I that's something I don't know a ton of about. So like, it's it's really interesting to hear what this one practice has done to the entire country. So just for folks who maybe like me are not as familiar, I mean, what were some of the demands of the workers who were thinking about striking um, late last yeah. year? Yeah, um, I, I'll hope, I hope I will do this justice. I am not a railroad worker. I've talked to a lot of them. Some of the demands, uh, the, the number of people on trains, staff responsible for running them has been being whittled down by these companies over years. Used to be three people on trains, now they went down to two. Now with precision schedule railroading, they wanna go down to one person on the train. That was a major thing that they were striking over. So keep more people on the trains to deal with these trains as they become longer too. Uh, so, more uh, more time to inspect cars. One of the rail workers told me industry standard for inspecting a car and catching a maintenance problem. You know, re you'll remember in this derailment, the axle on one of the cars overheated, caught on fire, flew off. The NTSB thinks that's likely why this train derailed. With precision scheduled railroading, the time to inspect cars went from three minutes to 90 seconds. So the, the time went down the staff to do it went down. They want the time to go back up and enough staff to safely inspect these cars. They want regular scheduling. Um, you might have, you know, if you're working on a train, that train's taking you all over the country. Uh, they don't have enough days off. So a lot of people working on these trains, they have families. 
uh, but the train takes them to a far off part of the country and their day off isn't spent with family back home. It's spent in the hotel room wherever your train left you off. And then you go right back to it. Uh, so imagine that effect, what effect that has. You're running the entire staff this way on safety. They wanted to address that. I mean, you, you go down the list and if you just listen to rail workers when they were striking, uh, it's all things directly related um, to running this, this industry in a safe way. I mean, uh, another angle of this is we, derailments are happening all the time and we don't necessarily hear about them and rail workers will tell you that. I had one recount a you know, derailment in Eastern Kentucky um, because of the death of local media. Um, this train, which was also carrying hazardous uh, materials derailed right next to a river. It's something that didn't really make the news. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be learned from, from listening to rail workers and uh, taking collective action. Like, that's wild to me, especially about the days off. I mean, I'm not, I guess, I wish I could say I'm surprised, but sadly, I'm not. Uh, this is a, I think, you know, this is a problem in, in probably almost every working class industry in this country, and we are only steps away from another disaster like this. I, I, I don't know that I'm building to a question with that. I just, um, uh, I, I think it's just, it's ridiculous that these things just go so unnoticed. I mean, obviously there's so many systemic problems in this country. You can't keep track of everything, but something like this really brings this whole industry to light. Um, Cal, I'm going to pass it to you because I think you had some questions about health conditions. Yeah. So I, um, I want to just maybe shift to what are we hearing coming out of the folks who are most directly impacted? Um, especially, you know, I, I first heard that like kids were really being impacted and I'm just wondering the immediate health conditions. I mean, the, the question of like, you know, who's going to get cancer and when we're going to get cancer, like, and in the timeline, um, is I think important, but I also, I, you know, I've heard that people are suffering right now with direct health impacts. And I'm wondering what you're hearing on the ground on that. Yeah, um, this is the thing. I mean, residents, it, it doesn't take very long to look through local Facebook groups and, and find pictures and firsthand accounts of a lot of these health impacts. I mean, I've had residents tell me that kids are playing outside uh, in, in direct visibility of workers in hazmat suits cleaning up this site. Um, there have been all manners of watering eyes and mysterious rashes and respiratory problems and uh, you know, previous health conditions that have become inflamed after this derailment, um, pretty popular accounts as well. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, a woman I went to, uh, the career center in the county where this happened with, uh, years and years ago, you know, had, uh, chickens die, uh, from this derailment and livestock act acting strange. I mean, all of that is, uh, very much happening right now. I think um, one of the things to be aware of is um, immediately after disasters happen like this, you know, the company is, is kind of used to, they prepare for this. You know, towns might not prepare for this. Doctors in town might not prepare for this. The healthcare systems, they're not prepared for this, but the company generally knows the practice of what to do when something like this happens. So an angle I want to follow up on is, you know, if people are being compensated for medical care that they received after this derailment by the company, 
I think it's very important for residents to look at the fine print of anything that they're signing that comes from the company and any kind of financial compensation that comes from the company. Because unfortunately, what you see in a lot of similar situations is uh, small legal fine print. DuPont. Uh, that might, yep, that, that might take away your rights when you receive $500 for staying in a hotel room. That's another thing to pay attention to here. I, and I, at the time, I didn't even know DuPont was doing that because I was like 13. Uh, and I probably signed my rights away or my parents did without realizing it, which is great. Um, then I think, uh, you know, I did see something from Senator Brown about um, mentioning that they wanted to be monitoring Norfolk Southern because they fully expected them to do something like that. And that's unfortunately kind of like you're alluding to not unusual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's not unusual. I, I think, um, you know, the, the regular, the regulators of this company need to step up as well. I mean, one of the things uh, rail workers will tell you is uh, the surface transportation board is the regulator that has power to do something about this corporate practice of, of precision scheduled railroad. Now that gets kind of deep into the weeds, uh, but when we're talking about courses of, uh, courses of action and what elected representatives can do, um, it is to uh, reopen this question of precision scheduled railroading that did come year, uh, you know, I think a year and a half ago before uh, the surface transportation board and, uh, you know, politicians who sit on that committee. So they have the power to open that up and, and say, are these trains too long? Are they correctly classified when they're carrying hazardous materials? Is there enough staff to safely run them? Are we having enough people monitor systems when something goes wrong? All those questions are something that politicians can pick up. And I think, that's, here's another angle. This week, we're gonna see national political figures come in. Donald Trump will be there on Wednesday. Uh, you know, we'll have Aaron Brockovich come in on Thursday. And uh, that is gonna add another angle in, into all of this. And I think probably an unproductive one at the end of the day. Yeah, I can't imagine. Um much good coming, especially from uh, the former president going into that area and spreading more bullshit than there already has been. You know what? I want to say something about this because I have talked to my friends that I know there uh, about Trump coming. Um, a lot of people, uh, you know, why they like the president asking, they'll tell you, oh, he runs a country like a business. Um, that, I can't tell you how many times I've really heard that when I ask, how do you feel about Donald Trump coming here? You know, he runs the country like a business. He's going to, you know, not take any gruff and he's going to get real answers. But I think the other angle to look at that is Norfolk Southern's a business. Uh, oh, if we're yeah. running the country like a business. Um, the way most people think of the mom and pop shop when they say that, I think. But the mom and pop shop is not American business anymore. American business is a monopoly, a giant corporate monopolies like Norfolk Southern who feel so empowered. Uh, that they can just detonate this train, pave over the disaster, go back to making money, don't show anybody, don't show up or send anybody to answer questions. That is running the country like a business. And um, I, I think it just puts, uh, puts it into the perspective we should have, which is who has power, who has money, and how do we really uh, put checks and balances on that kind of power? Yeah, that's a that's a brilliant point. And I think the more that 
the more that we can hammer home that messaging that that's really how a business is run, at least in in the context they're thinking of it, the better off I think we are. I, I wanted to ask to close out, is there anything that we didn't touch on or anything that you wanted to get out about this that we haven't already discussed? I'll add another, there's so many angles to this, but uh, here's, I, I think this is something worth thinking about. I went, uh, I went live on TikTok during the first press conference. Um, I was the only person there uh, from TikTok. Um, you know, this was a room where the general public was not. Um, it was filled with all of the typical media outlets who were the first ones on the scene to cover this. One of the comments that kept coming up in my TikTok live is, oh my God, uh, that's what it looks like behind the scenes of how our news is made. And I think people need to be aware that when a disaster like this happens or a major political event like this happens, the first stories that you're getting from it the truth and the facts in those stories have to run through a gauntlet of influence before they reach your ears and your eyeballs. And the people who have the most power and control over information over those first stories are always the company and the agencies, which are usually influenced by the company. You know, when I was up, I, I asked uh, our congressman how much he took from Norfolk Southern. Turns out it's at least $18,000 over his time in Congress. Um, when you're getting those first reports, you're seeing uh, the biggest influence uh, from the, the, the people who committed this disaster. And the last point I'll make on this, I, I'll, I'll make further videos on it too. I tallied up most of the news organizations who showed up to cover it first. Most of them were owned by two companies, Cox Media and Sinclair Media. Those companies who own the media, who showed up to cover this, have uh, you know, a, a baker's dozen of Wall Street private equity firms that own them. And the same private equity firms own significant stakes in Norfolk Southern. So you have Wall Street private equity that owns significant shares of the media who show up to cover a disaster like this and also own shares in the company that caused a disaster that the media is covering. I think there needs to be a lot more awareness that that situation is how business in America is run. And when you really see it for that, it becomes clear that the sides here are not left and right it is up and down. It is working class people versus these giant monopolies and how they run their business and how they influence our elected officials. That's the biggest thing to, that I yeah. would want to close. This, this really, I mean, it, this brings up something for me just like out of personal curiosity. So when you asked the congressman how much money he's taken from Norfolk Southern, was that like a Norfolk Southern pack, Or did he also, did he also say like, from executives, because that's something, I mean, now I'm like gonna go and look on Open Secrets and see like which executives gave him, which which maxed out to him in his primary, which maxed out to him in his general. I mean, like this, the money trail can go very deep. Um, and so when he answered $18,000, was that from just PAC money? I'll clarify this a little bit. I did some homework before we went up there and I found that from the Norfolk Southern PAC, excellent point you just made, 
our congressman received at least $18,000. And I said, you've received that much. Are you going to take more? He didn't volunteer that information. But this is a great point that you made because it's at least that amount. There are all kinds of ways to hide the money that you receive from a certain company. One of them is, like you said, it might be executives, employees in Norfolk Southern that are donating to them. This is just the hard side money where you can see expressly that Norfolk Southern PAC donated this much. There might be soft side money with independent expenditures uh, from groups that have innocuous names but are made up by Norfolk Southern. Um, what I asked about was just from the Norfolk Southern PAC. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes. And, and that is something that we all need to keep in mind as we look at this is that there's, I mean, there, there are great investigations into how political figures get money and there are, there's tons of evidence to show that there are entire families who max out to these folks. So you get at one executive, you get their wife, you get their children maxing out. And that changes every couple of years. Uh, this cycle, it was $2,900 as a max out for an election, but you can max out for a primary, you can max out for a runoff, you can max out for a general election. Um, and so uh, that that money can add up very, very fast. And so there's there's probably still a lot there that we haven't been able to uncover yet um, that could potentially uh, be more political influence um, yeah. the, of the of the company itself. Can, can I say one last thing to close here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. Uh, just in case it didn't come up in other conversation, I've talked a lot about this, but I, I think, you know, this is my personal opinion, but I think we, we'd be a lot better off when we stop looking at political figures, no matter where they come from, as people who are going to save us or act in our best interests. And the same thing goes for parties. We should really look at politicians and parties as vehicles to get what we want. And we should assume that their default is going to be to do not what we want. But they will do what we want when we come to them with enough people demanding the same thing. If you really wanna get something from your political leaders, it has to start locally and you have to unite over one thing. And I think uh, more and more as we go further uh, down the path of being a country where one person like Elon Musk can lose $200 billion and still be the second richest person, it's all about class. If you got to go to work for a living, you're in the working class. If you don't, you're on the other side. But to get something out of our political leaders, we have to look at them as a vehicle to be uh, made demands of with a group of people united around one thing. That's when we'll get change. I couldn't have said it better myself. John, thank you so much both for coming on the show, talking to us, but also for the work that you're doing, especially being there talking to real people and getting the real story, the real truth, not some filtered lens of what's happening there. And we really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. Love the show. Awesome. Right, that was our interview. I've got links in the show notes. Check out his Substack and all of his social media uh, accounts. Make sure you're following him because he's going to be covering this until there's nothing left to cover, I imagine. Uh, and he does a great job of doing that. He's worked with uh, More Perfect Union, collaborated with them on this. So we've got really good sources on the ground in him. And check him out. Make sure you support his work. Callie, any parting thoughts before we, we, we hop off? This was a doozy of an episode. 
It really was. Um, we love doing this for y'all. Let us know if you have any questions because we want to find the answers for you. And uh, let us know if you want to hear from anybody else on this issue. If you've seen someone that we need to speak to, let us know. Um, and thank you all for being so supportive of this. We have seen unbelievable sharing of information and spreading of you know, community community support for for East Palestine um, amongst our followers, and that's been really heartening for me. That our followers that, that that you all take this stuff seriously and you take community seriously, and it means a lot to me to see that it's not just it's not just us that that are out there doing this fighting it is it's literally thousands of you um who are fighting right alongside us to to make Appalachia a better place and to see real results for these folks so um i just i appreciate this community so so much absolutely echo all that couldn't have said it better myself thank you all so much for supporting us and for listening we'll we won't be covering this as extensively in the future, but any any type of relevant and important information that comes out about this, we're going to try to be on it as best as we can, and we're not going to forget about it, um, just like we don't forget about you guys. We thank you, we appreciate you, and we'll talk to you all next week.